hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, episode three of Warriors of the Deep. Say hello, Jason. Hello, Joe. And one of the last things you said as we exited part two mm. is that my defense of the story was starting to weaken. <laughs> I am going to come back on that, and I'm going to say this. We spent almost all of the part two material talking about the effects, the murka, the wobbly mattress, Peter Davison's questionable joke, a surprising abundance of references to the male phallus. <laughs> However, what, a what we haven't discussed is the plot mm. and the script. In terms of the plot, this is a Cold War thriller. You have two blocks, the East and the West, who are poised to engage in a civilization ending war with neutron bombs. And you have these humans clinging to the sea base, the sea floor, with the weapons in their hand that will destroy mankind as we know it. And the only way to operate these weapons is with the direct interface with the human brain. And the person they get as a sync operator has a conscience and literally can't fire the missile. That is basically the plot of War Games, the Matthew Broderick movie. It is the plot of Crimson Tide, which is the Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman nuclear action thriller from about 10 years later. That is an interesting setup. And then on top of that, you have the Silurians who are taking advantage of the unstable political situation to finally get their revenge on mankind. And the reason they're attacking the base is because they want to get their hands on the neutron bombs. They have sufficiently advanced technology. They don't need Maddox's brain. They are going to launch the war that will destroy mankind without lifting a finger. They'll just have East destroy West and West destroy East. The plot is very sophisticated. That is a praiseworthy plot. And Terrence Sticks in the novelization, which I cannot praise enough, explains it in a little more detail. Now, apart from the plot, you also have the script. And here is Johnny Byrne again from November 1st, uh, 1994. What is true is that my script was massively rewritten by Sayward and director without any reference to me. If I had been involved, the end result might have done justice to a story that merited enhancing, not the crude thrashing that ultimately showed up on screen. I certainly couldn't have done worse. And of course, it's telling this is Johnny Byrne's last Doctor Who script. So this is a really good plot. The scripting is not great. Like you say, the dialogue is mostly flat and functional. That can be pinned largely on Eric Sayward. I am inclined to give Penn and Roberts a free pass there because he was doing pretty good work on the visuals. But is there any part of the plot of the story that you don't like, or is it just the no. visuals that you object to? There's no part of the plot I do not like throughout the entire story. And, and that's never been my issue. Go look at my review on DWRG. That's never been my issue. The plot's never been my issue. But this is a science fiction story, so the execution is important. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the execution as much, but it is important. And obviously the dialogue is how you reach your audience with the ideas. So if those two things are both lacking, then they're kind of you can understand why maybe people aren't seeing like how good the plot is. 
I, I feel like this could be made now. This is such a good plot. This could be made now, and it would be like thrillingly done. It's funny that you mentioned that because the series five, new series, season five, Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. Oh gosh. That is a remake. The first half, the first half hour is a remake of Fratios shot for shot, and the rest of it is a condensed version of Warriors of the Deep. But it's written by Chris Chibnall, so once again, the script is a major letdown. Well, so, uh, I'd, I'd even say the, just can't win. the execution there is really, really bad as well. And then after that, the Silurians are all represented by Madame Vastra, and I don't even want to go there. Stephen Moffat's attempts at social commentary disguised as comedy are a bit puzzling to this reviewer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, blow, we're five minutes. We should skip into episode three. Compelling argument, down. though. I could absolutely listen to you in court. You know, <laughs> in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. I may have asked you this when we did Attack of the Cybermen. What is your favorite opening titles for all of Doctor Who, nineteen sixty-three to the year twenty twenty-one? I think the best one is Tom Baker's, but my favorite is um the original the william hartnell one i i just i love i love what they pulled off with uh you know and, and it's never been done before and it's so weird and atmospheric and scary i love more than the tom baker i love season 11 the john the last john pertley season where you have the time tunnel shaped like john pertley's silhouette that's really cool. You they are literally you are literally like the fifth person to say that in a couple of weeks, that their favourite is the season 11 one. Uh, this one, the Peter Davis is my favourite, but I think the John Pertwee season 11 is the best. That would be my answer to that question. Everyone sort of mentions how John Pertwee is the only Doctor that could go full frontal, sort of down the, the time vortex. Tall, slim, athletic. Uh, Colin Baker's silhouette would not have worked out quite so well, especially <laughs> in season 23. He would have plugged the vortex, wouldn't he? Oh, sorry, that's terrible. Uh, right, okay. The vortex. So I, let's talk about this now. Let's talk about um, the action that's about to happen, uh, the, the lining up of the soldiers, how nobody seems to run. So they just stand there waiting to be shot. It's very odd. It's a very odd way of uh, combat. So episode three is a 25-minute long action sequence. And this is the cliffhanger reprise right here. The Silurians and the Sea Devils have a plan. Then they are stronger than humanity. They are smarter than humanity. They execute their plan with military precision. That is what part three is about. That is the focus of part three. The goals are admirable and praiseworthy. Yes. The execution is let down because the Merka, well, again, no defense. The Sea Devil costumes didn't allow the actors any visibility. So those guys literally could not run because otherwise they would have fallen over and their their their, their heads, which were hats, would have fallen off because their face was down in the neck. So surely if you're struggling visually with all three of the monsters, this requires some major suspension of disbelief. But it's not the only Doctor Who story that you can say that about that requires suspension of disbelief. Just to say oh, that I Warriors think... of the Deep is going to be your scapegoat is to forgive a lot of sins from, from 25 other seasons. 
That is very true. Why should Warriors of the Deep take the blame that other tacky visual stories like Curse of Fenric so richly deserve? Oh, that's an interesting argument. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to um to go somewhere else a second, but Mark Strickson's, you know, the control for the thing. Where is it? He's so <laughs> he's worth his weight in gold, isn't he? The last Gallifrey one that I was at in Los Angeles, February 2020, right before lockdown, Mark Strickson is one of the guests, and he ran a panel by himself. Wow. He is fascinating. He's had an amazing career because mm. after acting, he went into producing wildlife documentaries. He discovered Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. And watching him in front of a room acting out some of his actual real-life escapes from killer monsters really? is incredible. He has charisma. He is funny. Yeah. It is one of the best convention panels that I've ever been to. He's fascinating as well. Like he's on the Behind the Sofa um, Blu-rays for season 23, Triumph of Time Lord. And like a lot of these Behind the Sofas, it's the big love-in, you know, classic Doctor Who. Oh, we'll be forgiving of its flaws, but it's amazing. He goes at it with a genuine critical eye and said he watches Mysterious Planet. And at the end of it, he says, OK, so Doctor's been off the air for 18 months. Would that satisfy you? Like, I admire his honesty. I I do. And he is a legit television producer, so he's looking at it from the, from the right eye. But I've just got my season eight Blu-rays. I dive into them tonight. And one of the behind-the-sofa couples for season eight is Sacha Dewan oh, and man. Anthony Mohidra. It's beautiful. Their, their commentary I cannot is... wait to hear the two of them talk about classic Doctor Who from 1972. You will not be disappointed. Your category is with you as well. It's either your cat or mine. That is Ginger, very unhappy because Smudge is encroaching upon her territory. They have the apartment divided in half. We have the entire second floor of the building. And for the last two years, Ginger has had one half and Smudge the other. But Smudge is trying to invade the dining room where I'm talking to you from. And my and cat's Ginger just, is having none of it. My cat's just woken up hearing your cats. So... <laughs> Smudge is trying to enter a room that she has no right to, and Ginger is loudly defending herself. Is one of the um, Silurians called Cervix? Because if he is, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's a real commentary there from, on Eric Sawall's part. Savix, S-A-U-V-I-X. It's it, a completely different word. It sounds like <laughs> Cervix to me with that modulator on. <sighs> Then we must prepare our troops for the sea. Oh, they talk so slow and monotonous. They should have gotten Peter Halliday back. Peter Halliday oh, was yeah. still acting in 1984. He could have done a better job. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you prefer the Silurians from the Silurians or Warriors of the Deep? I have just watched the Silurians when I did my season seven watch through, just finished that about two or three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And if you go to my Twitter at DR who novels, Dr. Who novels, you can see all my thoughts about the Silurians pretty close to the top. Cause I'm only just on terror of the autons. Now I think that the Silurians by Malcolm Hulk is a much better story because it inhabits its seven parts. It yeah. starts off as a mystery in the cyclotron the Silurians are introduced one bit at a time. In part one, you only see the drawing of a Silurian. In part two, you see the claw of a Silurian, and you see it through POV, and then it's silhouette. And then the reveal is not done until the cliffhanger in part three, 
Whereas in Warriors of the Deep, you're shown a Silurian full on two minutes into the story. Mm -hmm. So because it has more real estate to work with, the Malcolm Hulk script is just better. They're not going for suspense in this, though. They're, 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 they're trying to please the fans. Ian Levine is editing these scripts, and he wants to get straight to the continuity, you know? And there's a point there, because Doctor Who would often hold back its monsters until halfway through the story, partly because those costumes were burdensome to whip, that they were awful for the actors to be in. So you want the monster to be on screen as little as possible. That's why the Cybermen never appear until more than halfway through the story. Yeah. But that is not how you train <laughs> soldiers, though. Look, they were just standing there, like facing their guns. That's not how soldiers are trained to fight. But they're, they're falling back set by set. There's a clear progression, room by room. They're going from airlock to airlock. Maybe it makes more sense in the book where the Probably. Silurians and the Sea Devils are routing the humans and they're losing the base a little bit at a time. But I just think there is like, do you remember in um, Parting of the Ways where they're back on Satellite 5 and there's a direct progression through the, the levels there and it's dramatized yes. like really well and, and vividly. I'm not seeing that here. They're trying. They're trying. This is not. This is. This is well conceived, even if it's not quite so well staged. There is. A, there is a point to this. That there is Mark Strickson being jittery and magnetic in the yeah, middle of the screen. It's great. Like, like any anytime he's on screen, he's terrific. Like, like you know, I don't think that Mark ahead is actually terrible. I just think it's the whole thing and how it moves. Didn't John Nathan Turner famously go into the workshop and say, oh, "It's wonderful." I think this was the moment that Michael Gray turned on his television and said, what the hell am I paying for? <laughs> but they weren't paying much. Okay, like, like, let's take a step back from the production for a second and talk about the budget. Like, Doctor Who had a severely lacking budget, and look what they managed to pull off despite that. Again, credit to Penn and Roberts for making it look as good as it does, even in spite of the obvious flaw of the Merca and the Sea Devil slow walk. Well, I've got, I've got a big question for you then. Do you think that Doctor Who should always be ambitious? So I'm calling the Merca ambitious here. Even if they have unsuccessfully pulled off similar things in the past. I have said in one of my ratings guide reviews from about 15 years ago ambition is always to be praised in doctor who in fact you said this on the nyamon podcast or maybe it was joe when joe was sorry not joe, jack when jack was defending joe. the stephen moffat era yeah he has a quote from stephen moffat saying that every episode is an experiment and that's the way it needs to be because sometimes you'll fail and you'll fail gloriously but otherwise it's boring because it's the same show week after week Doctor Who has always reached for the stars, and it always has a couple of incredibly bad misses, like the web planet, but you have to give it points for trying. Do you think that it's a failing of the Hinchcliffe years, then? That Hinchcliffe started his productions with a, can we achieve this, then we'll write it. Oh, there's my cat now. His, his first story is the Ark in Space, which has some incredibly cheesy visuals but everyone loves the ark in space yes bubble wrap 
I mean, his era had the giant rat and the scarasan as well, so I'd say they were fairly ambitious at times. Right. And if you want to talk about the lighting in the Ark in space, the bright studio lights in the Ark in space set and the fiberglass we're in prop also maybe aren't the best combination. Uh, uh, but well, because Ark whole... has great music and great scripting, nobody notices how tacky the visuals are. That is the whole point of the Ark in space, though, is that it's supposed to be clinical, which makes the Wirren grub all the more terrifying. What's occurring now? Oh, so, Nilsson is in a hurry. Nilsson is trying to escape with Maddox's disc to give it to the Eastern Bloc. He is having Maddox dismantle the base's defenses before he leaves. So for him, the Merca, the Silurians are a side. So he's trying to get out and sell out the base to his block, the Eastern block. So he's doing his own treacherous thing on the side while the doctor is trying to defend the base with his UV converter. Why do you imagine they don't name the blocks? Does Doctor Who not want to be political at this point? That could have been an Eric Sayward decision. Um, I would imagine that Terran Six got that from the uh, rehearsal scripts, the, right. the, the East versus the West thing. That, may, like, that know, may have been the Johnny Burns original brief. Skip forward to sort of Cartmel's time, and the show is very political. But at this point, they really are kind of shying away from it. Um, I couldn't help but notice there. I, I, I just need to say in a, in a oh, hang on. No, I need to concentrate on Ingrid Pitt right now. There's a very, very important moment about to happen here. Is this is this Ingrid... another one of your free freeze frames? No, that's coming. Oh god! Okay, <laughs> look at this. Ingrid Pitt is a black belt in karate. Ingrid Pitt is literally a concentration camp survivor. Ingrid Pitt is a survivor of the Nazi destruction of the Jews. She oh, is a no. black belt in karate. There is every reason for Ingrid Pitt to roundhouse kick the Merca. It doesn't <laughs> quite <laughs> work. But you have to understand where Ingrid Pitt as an actress and a human is coming from. Yeah. You have to give her points for trying to roundhouse kick the Nazis into oblivion. The same way that you give Jack Kirby points for having Captain America punch Hitler in the jaw on the cover of the very first issue of Captain America in 1940. I'd rather but just let's go back. Cut. Let's go back to Johnny Byrne for a moment. Johnny Byrne says in 1994, "Nor did I write that mother of all drop kicks, which was supposed <laughs> to stop the market in its track. The credit is all theirs." First of all, that wasn't a drop kick; that was a roundhouse kick. I have no problem with what Ingrid Pitt was trying to do. And if the Merca wasn't a pantomime seahorse, that roundhouse kick might have looked a little bit better. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I wish that they had dispensed of that scene entirely and that Solo had survived this adventure to return in Colin Baker's time. I would have been all over that. Um, I, need to, I need to just mention that a moment ago, there was like a, a five-second scene of the Merkers' arse waddling away from the screen. Like, <laughs> what an arse. Honestly. I plead the fifth. I was reading from Johnny Byrne in another window from 1994. I didn't see that. Therefore, it didn't happen. <laughs> I love it. Okay, here they come. The Sea Devils are on the move. Also, as well, where's this idea of the Sea Devils being like a warrior class and the Silurians being like the sophisticated, the thinkers? It works. It works because it differentiates the two monsters on screen. This is their first time together, and if they're both the thinkers, then it's not very interesting. Could you imagine, right? You know, you know, uh, Ian Levine, you know, took a once-over of the script, 
and yeah, it was like there's 27, you know, continuity errors that have to be changed. So Johnny Byrne changed them, and then he made 27 more continuity errors, and then that that was reported back to JNT again. Like, could you imagine um, Ian Levine like giving a one over like the Deadly Assassin? Oh, given it's like you know portrayal of the timelines after the war games and things like that. After Jan Vincent Rutsky's famous review of uh, Deadly Assassin in the mm. BWAS newsletter, keep fandom away from continuity. Exactly. Like I don't I think I don't think JNT because you know where you end up. You end up with Attack of the Cybermen and that box ticking exercise we had in episode two. Right. I just finished Richard Morrison's book. Um, it's out of print now, but his JNT biography. Oh. I got the hardcover edition. And it's the most money that I've ever spent on a book in my life because it's impossible to come by. But the book is so good and so yeah. heartbreaking that it's worth every dollar that I paid for it. And that was a lot of dollars. I went into that expecting scandal. And what I got was um, a terrific like journey of somebody who's on the rise and then hit Doctor sort of midway through his Doctor Who period. It just fell, didn't he? And he just didn't. He kept falling. It's so sad that book. He was self-destructive. But it, you and I have discussed this on Twitter. Uh, Richard Marston makes the point that by casting Colin Baker in a garish outfit, JNT is casting himself as the Doctor. It's the ultimate Mary Sue. Yeah. And once you see that, you cannot unsee it. It's true. If Colin Baker wasn't such a fine actor and a great Doctor, I would have more objections to that. But he is. I have come to appreciate Colin Baker more over the years. He is much better than the material he was given. Mm. And the material he gets now is very good. Having spent all my money on the Richard Marson book, I don't have money to afford big finishes out <laughs> for a while. I bet. I bet. Okay, um, um, I'd like to bring your attention to Tegan, who's done very little so far in this story. Like, nothing at all. <laughs> Turlow, at least, is defending the base. He is doing his thing. Janet Fielding doesn't have her own individual subplot in the story. No. That is true. But then, you know, it's it's a problem, because I'd say in The Awakening as well, she doesn't have anything to do, really, does she? She's like Queen of the May. She's just a victim in that. But think about Genesis of the Daleks. What is Sarah Jane Smith's role in Genesis of the Daleks? One of your three favorite stories. She goes up the rocket. She she starts the raid, and she's terrified, and she's whinging, and she almost that she falls down on the cliffhanger. Oh, it's so well played though. It terrifies me some of that stuff. Oh oh my god, look. Okay, so the Silurians are in the half dark right now, and look kind of effective. And remember, they were in the dark in the spaceship in parts one and two. So Pennant Roberts has mostly kept them in the dark. And you credit him with turning down the lights in that hallway. I do. Servix, where are your warriors? Salvix, Salvix, <laughs> this is a family show. Are you sure we saw a woman being murdered in episode two? You'll answer a court martial for this, I promise. Uh, so, um, in uh, the episode they did for Flight for Entirety, Brendan Jones comments that Tom Adams is a very naturalistic actor away from Doctor Who. What happened here? He's, he's very kind of um, one note, isn't he? Well, it's the role that he's playing. He's playing the base commander. 
So he has to have a certain quality. It doesn't leave room for a lot of, uh, you know, character acting or bit part or funny accent or, or what have you. I'm going to raise you Tom Adams. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to raise you Beryl Reed then, because she was in a story which was a long action set piece where a base was being in- attacked. And she had plenty of character. Position your men on the walkway, Mr. Ringway. <laughs> and she did not understand one word of that script. At least Tom Adams knows what he's doing here. Oh, she's more watchable than Tom Adams. Come on. Oh, here I we go. Think Tom... We've got Nielsen being super evil now. Um, I'm going to read from Terrence Dix in a moment. Okay, I love, I love the fact. I love how angry Pete Davidson is here. Like, you know, I don't know why oh. I bother you, pathetic humans. Oh, okay. Get, get ready to get ready to freeze frame. Get ready to pause. Oh, okay. This is the end of Maddox here. Okay, I'm ready to pause. Tell me when. Now, 1955 on my chronometer. Okay. So Nilsson kills Maddox with his back turned. Doesn't even look over his shoulder. He hears Maddox from behind him, holds up his remote control, kills Maddox. Again, that is good blocking. That does not happen by accident. That is Penn and Roberts looking for some interesting way to play the scene. And you can resume. I, uh, I agree. That is, that is a good moment of direction. But so I think I... back to Terrence Dix. This is page eight, chapter one of the novelization. Vorschach was a tall, dark-haired man in his mid-40s. Elegant in his dark blue coverall, Vorschach had the rugged good looks of a recruiting poster hero, much to his own embarrassment. Tom Adams is playing that description to a T. He is. He's, He's also, playing he, William Shatner as Captain Kirk minus the ham. But there's no like, there's no twinkle. He's he's so dreary. You'll get no help from me, Silurian. <laughs> like it's funny on one level, but I don't know. There's no there's no charm to his performance. I, I don't care yeah, if he, he dies or not. That's my problem. But he he was not given. If he had been given a script that gave him some moments of charm or humanity, he would have played them. But again, thanks to Eric Sayward's rewrites, he is yeah. mostly giving functional dialogue. It might have been there, mightn't it? It might have been there. I, just, I don't ever get a sense that he's got a relationship with anybody on that base beyond being their boss. Now, but maybe in Johnny Rula Burns, Lenska in Resurrection of the Daleks gets much better dialogue oh, to work yeah. with. And that's another Sayward script. She does. Yeah, but she's, that's another pointless character that uh, that is just killed at the end. Well, yeah, that's Sayward. Every subplot winds up with somebody somebody being killed. And we will see it. Throw through the glass door. That is a clear. That's a cool shot. Throw it through the glass door. Do you imagine that's Kablam bubble wrap on those beds? <laughs> Let's hope Blam. I mean, you would not want to sleep on a bed with bubble wrap on it, would you? Maybe those beds are Noah from the Ark in Space. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is the scene, isn't it, where the freshly painted Merca that you can actually see the paint on the actors. It's on top. Uh, yes, it gets all over. Uh, yeah, it's on his arm. The actors' coveralls. That's that's unfortunate. But like, I, I didn't really notice that until someone pointed it out. Make a wish, Keegan. Yeah, see, people that say the Doctor won't fire a gun, that's technically firing a gun. He's doing it to momentarily blind Nilsson. He's not doing it to kill Nilsson. 
That's not firing a gun. It's just turning on the lights. Well, he fires a gun at Resurrection of the Daleks. And he almost kills a cat. I mean, it's unforgivable. <laughs> well, that's Eric Stewart for you. Aye. Women, cats, anyone's game. See, now, on paper, and... this is a terrific ending. A, a grand showboating like, confrontation with the villain. The monsters coming in and threatening the Doctor. I don't know. Exactly. I, I agree with all of that. It's great. It's, it's a fine, fine ending. But it's really drab. <laughs> why is it so drab? You just explained all the reasons why right, it isn't right. drab. And then, of course, the uh, sea devil says, your turn. That's a great cliffhanger line. I'm holding up a gun. It's so weird, isn't it? Because uh, I would love to see this executed. Uh, away from you know this production team because I just think this could be so good. I don't know. Different script editor, yes. Yeah, 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 for sure. But then I don't know these these sort of um, the darker universe that came in in season twenty one. These sort of massacres. This is what Eric Sword brought, wasn't it? So maybe this wouldn't have been made at all without Eric Sword. Well, if part three is all about the invasion of the base, part four is all about the body count. So we can talk about that in part four. I think it works very well. Yes. Is that the episode where it's like more people dead than Reservoir Dogs? Or is that Resurrection? <laughs> it's possible. Although Attack of the Cybermen almost has it beat. 